Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Jeanette Lucas is a psychic consultant, writer, dowser, and treasure hunter. She's known for working with police, families, and businesses on a number of projects from missing persons, finding missing objects, finding treasure, solving mysteries. She's been hired for technical advising and her expertise on movies and documentaries as well. Her rep website is Reach Jeanette, and it's spelled G-I-N-E-T-T-E dot com, linked up at coasttocoastam.com. Jeanette, welcome to the program. I'm really looking forward to this with you tonight. George, can I call you George, or do I call you Mr. Nori? You can call me Mr. No, of course, call me George. <laughs> hey, I'm very excited to be here. Thank you. It's an honor, and I think I'll have a lot of fun for you. Tell me about this gift that you have. How did this happen? Well, uh, I, I would just—I'll just give you the basics. Um, my father is Louis Matasha, who was actually interviewed by Art Bell. And I learned about dowsing at about age seven. Aha, uh-huh. so okay. Dowsing, so dowsing came first, and then, but, well, actually, before dowsing, when I was about five, my father was really big into, I, at that, at, now they call it remote viewing, but when I was about five, it was clairvoyance or psychic ability. And he, we would all lay in the back of the station wagon right around the neighborhood, and we would have to tell our father what we saw. And he said, if you ever get kidnapped, Tell me what you see. And he would say, do you feel like a barn, a school, a road, dirt road? What do, what do you feel? And as silly as that sounds, I was one of five, and we would all give an opinion. And then sometimes we were right or wrong, but we got instant feedback. And then shortly after my father and his work with the U.S. military and the federal government, when I was about seven, I had an accident and had a near-death experience. And... Um, the other side came to me and said, your whole life is going to change at 27, and you're going to go into this new field, and your career is going to be different. And they gave me a bunch of unique information or predictions. And at 27, I had a, a not only a car accident, but I had kidney failure and oh, had a near death in the hospital and got a bunch more information and became a full-time psychic. And you, you've never stopped since? No, no. Mm-mm. How did you get involved in true crime with this kind of work? Well, actually, when I had my second year death experience, um, when I went to the other side, I was so scared <laughs> that I realized I wasn't on earth anymore, I guess you could say. And I got there and I, I kept saying to whoever the, the powers that be that, what can I do for you? And they said, we want you to bring our people home. And I said, what, is, what does that mean? And they said, we want you to find missing people. And here I am. That, that sounds silly, but that's what happened. Did your father augment your skills? He did. He did. And um, I was very fortunate. Um, I worked on one of my first true crime cases when I was about 13. Um, he, would t- he would lecture around the country. And at one time, he took me with him to the University of Maryland and another community group a lecture and I would sit in the crowd and listen and he would give pointers and then of course at the same time other people with the same interest were in the group and they would say oh you're going to become a psychic and I thought to myself what the heck um, you know it's a shock I mean if sure when you grew up somebody said to you and somebody said to you hey you're going to be a host and you're thinking to yourself what the heck so everything is a surprise and and it did 
it did, it's like a baby in the oven, you know, you're cooking and all of a sudden you're here. <laughs> Delivery. Yes, you are in, in a big, big way too. How did you first start getting involved in missing children? Did, does, did the police department come to you? Did you go to them? How did that start? The very first case, um, I was with my father again in Maryland, and when I was there, he was letting me have uh, classes with a psychic to learn psychic ability because she was so insistent I was going to become a psychic. And um, she said, now what I want you to do is take the information I taught you and go to bed tonight and dream on it. So now today I call it dream incubation. So in other words, if you want to learn some information and you put down your subject matters of what you want to learn, which mine was crime, because she said, I want you to think about the police and any kind of crime. So I, I go to bed, and I guess I was about 12 or 13, and I, I was actually at her house in Maryland, and she woke me up and said, come, come on downstairs, I want to talk to you. And she had gotten a phone call from a police officer, you know, one of the police chiefs, and she said, there's a missing kid in the area, and I want you to come with me and help me find this missing kid. And I said, actually, I had a dream last night that there was a kid. He was one of five kids, which I was, so I could identify with it. And it's a boy, and he's around maybe eight or ten. And he was playing with another kid who was either high-functioning autistic or high-functioning mentally um, disabled. Mm -hmm. And uh, he got hit in the head by the other kid, and the family freaked out, took the kid, and apparently killed him and buried him in a, an orchard. And I, she had me uh, draw pictures of everything I saw, just like a cartoon. You know, you have a clip, 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 clip. And the cop came out, and before the cop got there, I said, well, we're going to go here first. And I drew a picture, and the cop goes, it, it was a picture of a house. And it was a square house with a front stone, you know, the, the house with stones, just stone. Mm, did he know this house? Um, well, he was pretty shocked. He said, um, tell me seriously, have you ever been to this house? And I said, no. So I drew a U-shaped dri- half-moon driveway, a tree in the middle, and no other trees around. And he goes, well, we're going to go there. And we went there, and it was his house. He had forgotten his hat. And he goes, I don't know how you did that. And she said to him, I told you she's good. And I had drawn a picture of where the boy was missing from, which was a trailer. And I said, the apple orchard is way over there, but I don't know if you're going to find him. It's going to be a long time because it's going to be very difficult without a lot of help. And they never found him, to my knowledge. I mean, I could be wrong. It was so many years ago. But um, whatever I drew up was absolutely correct. There was a, an autistic child across the street who, you know, you know how autistic children are. They're age 7 or 10, but they're, they're actually 22, age 22, and their physical agility or their physical strength is off the charts. So that particular child had been in trouble before because of his uh, domestic violence and that kind of thing. And he had lived with his mother just like I had predicted. So it was my first exposure to it. Did you think at that point that you had these psychic skills? Did you know what was happening to you? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that the dream was helpful because it was so colorful, just like a movie. But 
it was still a surprise, and I went home, and my mother was not comfortable with the whole scenario and got me away from it. So my next step was reading books on it and uh, just getting through life, and that was it. So it was quiet for a number of years. There's a fine line between remote viewing and psychic abilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, I assume you're both. Mm, I, I'm all of the above. I have almost all the abilities you can have. Um, now, again, I've had some near-death experiences, some trauma to the head that could be part of the problem. So I'm, I'm a unique person. Um, remote viewing, I think, is great, but I the approach for remote viewing is more a focus on one thing. I try to do the psychic ability where you do a 360 so you can actually spin it around the room and see what's in the room instead of just one item, where remote viewing sometimes is just one or two, three things in the room that might be influential in solving something. Did your father work with uh, Ingo Swan at all in the military when with yeah. their remote viewing program? I knew of Ingo. He might have. Um, I haven't asked him recently. He's still alive. He's turning 90 in 2020. Oh, that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, I do remember, yeah, I mean, Ingo was one of my favorite heroes. I did read about Ingo and, of course, Yuri Geller and so forth. Um, my father worked with, um, it, like, they would take, for example, they would take, when he was at the Pentagon or DIA, de- department, you know, um, uh, Fort Meade, um, mm-hmm. Angela Ford was there down the hall, uh, Joe McMonagall. Um, it was sort of the soup of the psychics, but they weren't psychics at that time. They were called analysts. So um, definitely undercover. Even at 90, is your father still practicing this? I try to get him to do some things for fun, water wells, and maybe some treasure. It, it definitely turns him on. He's very excited about it. Um, sometimes he goes a little overboard with what he thinks is there. Um, this coming week, I was thinking about having him do a couple things for fun to see how um, how difficult it is for him, but he... He still has the excitement with it. Um, he has dementia, and um, but if you get him before two o'clock, of course, you know before sundowners, he he does all right. His communication is good one minute, and the next minute he repeats himself. Yeah, frequently. over over and again. You know, my father yeah. started doing that. My he 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 passed away at eighty eight, and uh, I I could see the, over the years, Jeanette. Uh, that change, that mental change with him, where mm-hmm. he would it's, repeat himself a lot and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It's a shocker, but with my father and his psychic ability, um, it, it, it's amazing to me. Some of the things he mentions, uh, I'll never have, it, he just comes out with something that I had never heard before. And I could verify it because my father was a huge note taker. How did he find his way to coast to coast with Art Bell? How did that happen? Um, well, in the, I guess in the early 60s, um, my father was a professional surveyor, and he was out one day, and he was taught dowsing, and for, for people out there that don't know what dowsing is, but I assume most of your listeners know what dowsing is, he used an L-rod to locate an electrical point uh, for surveying, and it was a commercial building, mm-hmm. and he was so impressed by it, he went home and was telling a friend of his who worked for the CIA and said, you know, we could take this and use this. He thought outside of the box, and we could use this for our boys in Vietnam. And so his friend went back to work and at, at the CIA and said, you know, Lewis has got some great ideas here. 
And he knew Lewis started finding water wells and finding this and finding that. And they, um, the chiefs of staff came out to our house when I was seven. Um, we lived right down the street from D.C. And I guess it unfolded that the, the feds came out. And as I mentioned, the joint chiefs of staff, some of the, the members came out to the house for the demonstration. And um, I guess it, it, once he did that, taking the technique of dowsing, which is, is also a combo of psychic ability and dowsing, um, it, it hit the papers running, and Art Bell heard about him ah, and interviewed okay. him. All right, that's fascinating. Now, did your father know that he had the ability as a dowser, or did he think it was in the rod that he would hold? I think my father thought it was more rod, but the interesting thing is I found out through the years later that my father's my grandfather was best friends with Bob Monroe and the Monroe Institute. Oh, he was a great uh, out-of-body experience uh, guy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it, it was really odd. Um, when I was a kid, and my, my father's from Charlottesville, and we would, my father would go talk to my grandfather about the Monroe Institute and all the unusual things they did, because, of course, that was executive level. So my father was super interested. And so I really think he thought it was the rod I mean, I have my own theories, and I'm sure you do too, on what and how it how it works. Yeah, it, it's fascinating because we know one thing: it does work. It does work. Mm-hmm. How we get to it is another matter, but uh, it it does work. You've worked on some high profile cases, uh, and you've gotten you know the FBI to really respect your work. Did that take time, or did that come easy? Well, I would say um, a cl- just it was a fluke. It was totally a fluke. Sometimes people would mistreat me, meaning the authorities, and then other times people would call me and say, hey, there's somebody missing. Um, I'm a friend of a, an FBI agent. I'm going to bring him out. I want you to do this case. Do you mind doing it? And it would be for volunteer work. Um, but then I found out later who that FBI agent was, and because we seemed so normal, I believe, they were very kind and considerate and respectful of the work. Um, I don't sit there and scream and shake or anything, so I'm sort of status quo sitting there talking to people, and I think they're a little bit more comfortable with that. So when I worked with the FBI or even some CIA employees, uh, they were very welcoming. Um, when it comes to local police, you have a 50-50 chance. They treat you very rudely. They're wondering why you're there, um, who are you, um, what do you know. I mean, they even wonder if you're going to be one of the suspects. Well, I was going to ask you that because you're so spot on. Wouldn't most police departments think the only person who knows about this is the person who killed this person or whatever they did? Mm-hmm. It, it, it happens. I, I worked a case in Williamsburg and... The local police were there. They never said a word to me. The FBI were there. Um, I had already completed some work for the DEA, and the DEA was very nice to me. Um, Fortunately, I did a case with the DEA, and that actually, it it fell in my lap, and um, I was correct on the case. And so they told, uh, the DEA agent told the FBI, you got to talk to this girl. So they go down to, I go down to Williamsburg. I don't know if you remember, but way back when, I'm aging myself. Um, Williamsburg had a serial killer or two or three, and at one time a couple went missing. And I, oddly enough, I had the L rod in my hand, and I know that looks goofy, 
but it's amazing. I got out of the car, my car, I pulled the L-Rod out, and I said, okay, so let me go where the killers went and where they took the remains of the bodies and that kind of thing. And as again, as goofy as it is, I got out of the car, and I walked exactly where the canines were walking to, and then I walked back over to the water, and I said, they're right there. And I actually smelled a smell of a deceased person. Oh, jeez. Yeah, it was weird. And then the FBI agent grabbed my arm and said, would you come to the car for a minute? And I, I got in the car, and he goes, what the F do you think you're doing? And I said, excuse me? And he goes, who are you? Where do you live? Because nobody could have known that. Nobody knew we had dogs down here. Do you live here? And I said, no, I'm from the Northern Virginia, D.C. area. And, you know, of course, they were disturbed by it, but I took it in stride that I knew that I was a female I don't want to say debating uh, a cop or an FBI agent because I didn't. I just took the the verbal abuse and just said, look, guys, I'm just here to help. Okay, the family paid for it. I'm here. Let's get it done. And he goes, we're not going down there where where you think the bodies are. And I said, why not? And he said, it is naval territory. It's top secret, and we can't even get in the water. I said, okay, then. So... Those two kids are still at that location. They're still there? They're still there. And this happens, I would say, a good 40% of the time I have cases where I would love to say, hey, the remains are right there, and nobody will follow up. Um, finding a missing person is a several-part process, not only meeting the family or the police, but then you have to assess it, and the, the last part is search and rescue. And if they don't take canine sometimes, um, and, and we'll talk about other cases where I'll give examples. Right. You can't. You can't. You can't do anything. You're stuck. Your hands are tied. Did you develop a confidence with some of these police and FBI folks eventually, where they just believed everything you said? Some of the guys. Some of the uh, professional. Uh, well, I should say more educated uh, FBI agents or DEA agents, or some of the military people. I think were definitely in shock. And definitely happy I was right, because I think they wanted to believe. I mean, it's like telling a DE agent, hey, go listen to George Norrie. This is an amazing show. And all of a sudden, they turn the tide and say, yeah, that is pretty cool. Um, so sometimes they were just, I'm in. They're just saying, I'm in. I'm, I'm done. I believe it. And then other times, they, they, they were still skeptical. And I, I get it. I'm skeptical sometimes. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.